Hey guys, you want to hear my new remix of Bel Air by Can? It's fire! Hell yeah! Woo! All right. Presenting together for the first time, Can and Will. Now this is a story all about how my life got flipped, turned upside down, and I'd like to take a minute just sit right there. I'll tell you how I became the prince of a town called Bel Air. second thought, maybe some things don't go so well together. Unlike Discord and Rhyme, which this is. Discord and Rhyme, a podcast where we discuss our favorite albums song by song. Roll call, Mike DeFabio. Phil Maddox. And John McFerrin. And now it's time to turn it over to this week's host, Phil. What album do you have for us, Phil, and why did you pick it? I have chosen Can's 1971 double LP, Tago Mago. Yeah. Oh, that little thing? Ah, that easy to discuss <laughs> little minor entry in like the pop music canon. As to why I picked it, so Can have long been one of my absolute favorite bands. If, like, it's hard to, like, narrow it down, I'd probably slot them somewhere in my top five. I absolutely love them. They made music that, to this day, sounds like absolutely nothing else. The problem is, they're a really difficult band to discuss because their music is so different from basically anything else. They very rarely have what you would call normal songs, and some of their tracks veer way off into the avant-garde. Their albums are also pretty distinct from each other, which makes it hard to pick a definitive can album. But I decided to go with Tago Mago because it's generally the band's most critically acclaimed album, and the band does enough wild and interesting stuff throughout this record that I thought it would be fun to discuss this one. All right. So, Phil, what is your personal history with Tagomago and Can? So I had, you know, heard of Can just by general critical love for them. They're one of those bands that critics have always just worshipped, but I'd never heard them. So one day I went to this tiny little music shop called the Vienna Music Exchange in Vienna, Virginia. I don't even know if it's still there, but if it's still there, it's awesome. And they had a copy of Tago Mago, and I wanted to support this shop, and I'm like, I, I've been meaning to check this out. This was about like 15 years ago, probably. And I bought Tago Mago, and I put it in, and Paper House started and the first couple minutes of it, I'm like, OK, this is kind of interesting. And then it got to the middle section, which we'll talk about later. And I quickly realized I love this band. And then I very quickly acquired every single other piece of music by them I could possibly acquire. And they're still one of my most listened to bands. If I don't know, you know, 
what music I want to listen to today, Can is a band that I will reach for an awful lot of the time. Yeah, that's a good choice. John, how about you? Uh, so I bought Togo Mago uh, as my introduction to Can in my senior year of college. I was in a, a phase of basically going through every major list of of critical favorites uh, that I wasn't acquainted with at this time. And I, it was a long log for me to uh, to go through and say, like, well, I don't know this and I don't know this. And what's the worst that can happen? And I ordered this one and I don't think my roommates liked it very much. Oh, they didn't like Peking O? No, uh, but I I really fell for this album um, on first listen. I would qualify that with I really fell for the first half of this album and scratched my head at the second half. Well, uh, yeah, but over time, um, th- you know, this quickly settled into it, an album I rated very, very highly um, and that I think is just super interesting. And with, with Can in general, I, I started filling out all the other uh, major gaps and eventually all the minor gaps that I could find as well. Um, Can isn't one of my very favorite bands uh, just because they, they, they're not the kind of music that like really, really grabs the core of my soul necessarily. But if they're not in the absolute upper threshold, they're not that far off. And like Phil, this is a band where, you know, if I'm just in the mood for something to have in the background or something to stimulate me to engage with, um, I will reach for can whether live or studio just because it, it hits a lot of buttons that you know, work well when I'm, you know, I'm doing work or even if I'm just like out and about walking, like they, they, hit a really nice sweet spot, both a really, really busy and really, really atmospheric. And yeah, I'm, I'm super interested in this band and super interested in this album. And I'm really happy we get to talk about it. Same here. Uh, so as for me, I got into can Togo Marco was also my introduction to can, and this must've been around 2000 or so. I was, I was in the process of getting really into the fall and I read that the can were a big influence on the fall. And this was a time when there wasn't a ton of information on the internet about Can. George Starriston hadn't reviewed them yet. Mark Prindle hadn't reviewed them yet. He actually got his copy of Monster Movie from me. Uh, flex there. <laughs> but uh, they weren't in the Music Hound Guide to Rock that I had at home. Uh, so it was very, very hard to find out much about them. But the little bit of information that I did find... It was written in sort of these hushed, reverent tones that you use to describe a band that is going to blow your mind. The good news was that their albums were in print. I could go to a record store and buy them. But, you know, I was a teenager without a whole lot of money, and we had a dial-up connection, so downloading a whole album wasn't much of an option. So I had to go onto, like, Amazon and listen to the 30-second real audio clips to get an idea of what the album sounded like, and... I was hooked. I have to buy this album now. I went and bought a Tagomago as soon as I as soon as I could afford a copy. And when I listened to it front to back, well, the back half does take some getting used to. But the front half, I really was blown away by it because I realized what these guys are doing is they're playing electronic music on rock instruments yep. in the early 70s. That just split my mind wide open. So it's it's an album I loved right off the bat. It's an album I still love today. I'm 
glad to be talking about it. And I hope we we introduce some some new listeners to it. All right. That's the goal. I want as many people to be familiar with Can as possible. So, Phil, what can you tell us about the history of Can? Once it was blind, but now I can see. Now that you're in love with me, you made a believer out of me, babe. You made a believer out of me. She said, do, 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 uh. She said, do, 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 uh. She said, do, 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 uh. She said, do, 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 right. She said, you, it's all right. She said, you, it's all right. Well, the history of Can can be traced back at its roots to keyboardist Erman Schmidt. Erman Schmidt was a concert pianist and conductor who specialized in avant-garde classical music. He didn't really think much or care much about rock music until a trip to New York in 1965 or 1966. It's hard to say exactly when. Uh, the mists of time and what have you. But according to a 2018 interview with The Guardian, quote, Germany was very strict. There was this phrase, serious music. But in New York, there was no barrier. People were only interested in whether music was wild and interesting and beautiful. Upon his return, he decided to form a new group with flautist David C. Johnson, who quickly left the group because it was too rock-oriented, and bass player Holger Schuring, later known professionally as Holger Chukai. The core group was soon fleshed out with guitarist Michael Caroli and drummer Yaki Liebitzeit. The group was finally completed with the addition of Malcolm Mooney, a New York-based sculptor. The group shuffled through several names, starting out as Inner Space and The Can, before <laughs> eventually settling on just Can, which is frequently stylized in all caps, but not consistently. The band's music was largely improvised. The group would jam for up to 12 hours a day in the studio. And then, once they had finished jamming, Chukai would take these tapes and edit and manipulate them to form more concrete compositions. So the form of their pieces was always improvised first, then cut that into a piece. So in 1968, the group recorded their debut album, tentatively titled Prepare to Meet Thy Pnoom. Yeah, your guess is as good as mine. That sounds like a <laughs> King Crimson title from the mid-90s. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Prepare to meet thy vroom. Most of the elements of the band's sound were already in place. Highly rhythmic, charging pieces that really sounded like nothing that had come before. Inside. 
Innovative as the music was, however, no record label was interested in buying what Can had to sell. The whole album was eventually scrapped, eventually appearing on an archival release in 1981 retitled Delay 1968. Undeterred, though, the band recorded another album, theoretically with the goal of being quote-unquote more commercial. Uh. (laughs) That album... 1969's monster movie sure doesn't sound more commercial to me. If anything, it sounds even more defiantly uncommercial. I do love the idea that to can this was a commercial move. All has been forgotten in the past, it turns to rotten grains and smells. While pointing to the deadly beautiful, mother who in pain created the woman who disguised their weight. And the father has been born again, has been However uncommercial it was, something about it clicked with United Artist Records, who signed the band. However, just as things seemed to be going well, Malcolm Mooney had a nervous breakdown and quit the band, returning to America. Left without a vocalist, the group encountered a young busker named Kenji Suzuki, later known as Demo Suzuki, busking outside a cafe. They liked his style and invited him to join the band completing the lineup that most people consider to be the definitive can lineup. The group quickly released Soundtracks, a slapped-together compilation of music the band had recorded for films, containing some older work they had recorded with Mooney and some newer work featuring Suzuki. The album, despite its very slapdash nature, provided an excellent introduction of Demo Suzuki to the world.
In late 1970, the group retreated to a castle near Cologne to begin work on their first full-length LP with Suzuki. The group would jam for up to 16 hours a day over the course of three months. Chukai would later take these improvised jams and reassemble them into compositions. Notably more experimental and less rock-driven than their earlier works had been, the resulting double LP from these sessions was released in 1971 as Tago Mago, the album we're here to discuss today. The group went on to record two more albums with Suzuki, 1972's Ege Bamyasa and 1973's Future Days, before Suzuki left the band. After he quit, the group didn't replace him. They just continued on as a four-piece. The group continued on to make very interesting music, most of it well worth hearing. But the band's legacy has largely rested on the early albums the band made with Mooney and Suzuki. You could really make an argument for any of those albums being the best the group ever recorded, but in my opinion, Tago Mago remains the greatest of them all. Alright, so before we get started on Tago Mago, it's time for a heartfelt thank you to our newest Patreon supporter, Justin. Not Justin Hayward, though, which I guess is okay. Because of everyone who has signed up at patreon.com slash discord pod, we're able to pay all of our hosting costs and have a little left over to buy coffee or tea. If you want to support Discord and Rhyme in other ways, you can help other people find out about us. For example, by tweeting about our episodes, telling your music-loving friends about this cool podcast, or loudly talking about Can in public places. And about how you were there at the first can show in Cologne. I was there at the first can show in Cologne. Which is sure to make you lots of interesting new friends. You can also purchase the albums we talk about or whatever else your heart desires through the Amazon affiliate links on our website, discordpod.com. We've also got complete show notes there for every one of our episodes, including additional information, a Spotify playlist of all the songs we clipped, and corrections for the rare but non-zero occasions we get something wrong. Oh, we never get anything wrong. That's true, never. We are also coming up on our annual Q&A episode, and you still have some time to get your questions in. If you want to know anything about our podcast, anything to do with music in general, or what is up with all the kraut rock all of a sudden, email discordpod at gmail.com or tweet us at discordpod. Now it's time to get started on Tago Mago and learn why people who live in paper houses should not set fires. Burn them! Burn them all! Track one is called Paper House. Probably the most 
traditionally rock-oriented song on this album. The opening of this song sounds like a fairly standard psych rock number. It certainly sounds like a good one, but there's nothing in the opening bit that has the elements that really define the music of Can, other than Suzuki's typically obtuse-slash-nonsensical lyrics. Then, about two minutes in, the opening bit fades away, and we get a taste of what I consider to be the defining characteristic of this album, Yaki Liebetzite's powerful hypnotic drumming. This leads to an incredibly powerful rhythmic jam that lasts for several minutes and never gets boring for a single second. Stay at the fore while the bass and guitar weave around them and create an otherworldly atmosphere. Finally, Damo Suzuki's vocals come in and complete the picture, creating a piece that could only have come from the minds of Can. Again, as I mentioned earlier, Tagomago was the first Can album I bought, and therefore this was the first piece of music from Can I ever heard. I bought this album totally blind, and I heard that opening section and thought, you know, cool as it was, you know, maybe this band had been oversold to me a little, but then when that midsection hits, that, man, that is just exactly the kind of music I love. All right, John, what do you think of Paper House? I really like Paper House. I, I think that I've always thought that this is probably the weakest on of of the initial stretch. Um, but I think that's just because when I think of Can on this album, you know, again, like I, I initially glommed on really, really hard to the drumming. And, you know, it takes a little while for the drumming to really center itself in this track. But eventually, like it becomes a major part and it's it's fantastic here as it is elsewhere. But of I also eventually realized that, you know, there's a lot of really lovely details in this um, that don't, you know, really manifest themselves necessarily on the rest of the album. I love the guitar on this track. It's very, very graceful. It's, it's, you, you could almost call it lovely. I mean, that needs some asterisks here and there, but, um, you know, it, it, that descriptor seems like it fits. And, you know, there's also some, some nice tinkly bits of of keyboards buried in there, you know. Again, adding some uh, uh, a sense of of grace and beauty to the noise and the din. And again, it, it's one of these things where you know there's there's a lot of things going on, and there's a lot of noise and a lot of rhythmic power, but it it comes together in a way that you know again from the first listen has has really struck me as as very coherent and. It's really only grown for me over the years in terms of power and effect on me. 
so yeah, it's it's not a knockout opener, but it's a really good one. And it's a really good table setter, I think. Yeah, I would almost say this might be kind of a stretch, but it almost feels like this album starts by lulling you into a false sense of security. A little. Yeah, because that opening section almost sounds like Pink Floyd. Yes. And specifically like that sort of murky post Sid Barrett pre Dark Side of the Moon period. Like what's the difference between that? Uh, I mean, there's some differences, but on a fundamental level, what is the difference between the opening portion and like the more floaty bits near the beginning of Echoes? Yeah. Again, like there's differences in arrangement. There's specific things here and there, but there's still the sense of you're just kind of in the clouds with with different aspects of the music sort of congealing around each other. Well, I was thinking it wouldn't sound that out of place on the Moore album. Oh, that's a great call. Yeah. A butterfly with broken wings is falling by your side. The ravens all are closing in. There's nowhere you can hide. Your manager and agent are both busy on the phone. Selling colored photographs to magazines back home. easily be the best song on more i like more and uh specifically i think ermin schmidt reminds me of uh rick wright here not so much in the way that he plays but the fact that you know he's he's rarely in the foreground on this album but what he's playing is very important like the the cascading little bits of keyboard he plays in this song but then you get to that middle section and it just goes off and you realize oh, this this might be one of the greatest things I've ever heard in my life. Right, because then it becomes very not like Pink Floyd, because I can't imagine (laughs) Nick Mason playing that. No, he would keel over. And I I love Nick Mason because he never does anything that I can't do. If I tried to play like Yaki Liebitzite, I would end up smashing my drums in frustration. And there is is a really great video out there that I'll make sure to to put a link to in the show notes of Can doing a, a live version of Paper House on uh, the German music show Beat Club. And you can see how Yaki Liebitzite goes crazy on not a very large drum kit. It doesn't take a lot for him to do what he does. Well, in a certain sense, he's just not doing that much. He's just doing what he does better than anybody else in the world. Yeah. <laughs> if if I had to pick a favorite drummer in the world, it's Yaki Liebitzite. That's a good choice. He is my favorite drummer. He very well might be my favorite drummer. And this isn't even the best example of his drumming on this album. No. But if we are done with Paper House, let's move on then to track two, Mushroom. Mushroom, Mushroom. Snake, a snake! Oh, it's a snake! Lol, so random. Sorry, guys, I had to do that. Here's the actual mushroom, which has much less to do with early 2000s internet culture. Yeah. 
is probably the closest thing to a straightforward song that you'll find on this album. It's four minutes long, and the lyrics, strange as they are, are actually about something concrete. It's about the aftermath of the detonation of a nuclear bomb. So given that this is as close to a normal song as you're going to get, if that's what you're into, savor it because you won't get anything else. As is frequently the case on this album, Liebitzite's drumming is the most important element. He lays down a groove that I don't even really know how to describe. It's not exactly quote-unquote funky, but it's not not funky. It's not flashy, but it's unique and ever-changing, and it would be incredibly difficult for any normal drummer to reproduce. It's steady and hypnotic, but it's also constantly shifting. It's an absolutely masterful performance on an album completely filled with masterful performances. I consider Tago Mago to be one of the best drum albums of all time, possibly the best drum album of all time. Outside of the drumming, you have Suzuki alternating between sounding calm and unhinged, as atmospheric guitar, keyboards, and bass sounds swirl about him. It absolutely captures the feel of a post-apocalyptic landscape. It's an incredibly effective sound painting, and the band manages to pull it off in four minutes. Yeah, Mushroom is the kind of song that makes me wonder if maybe songs just sort of originate outside of time somewhere and enter the world at a, a predetermined moment. And sometimes there are errors because that's the only way I can imagine that this song was recorded in 1971 instead of 25 or 30 years later. Yeah, like this is wildly ahead of its time. It sounds like nothing else now, but especially then. And I, I want to talk a little about how this album was recorded, because generally when you're recording a, a rock album, the typical thing that you want to do is you want to take the room away. You want to record in a room that's as acoustically dead as possible. You want to have uh, as many microphones as possible recording each individual, each individual drum on the drum set. You want everything very close mic'd. And then then you can put the room back with, you know, your fancy reverb unit or, you know, an echo chamber or what have you. And can were recording in a very reverberant castle with not a very large number of microphones. And you can actually hear them using the microphone bleed as almost an instrument in and of itself, especially the drum sound on this song. Members were sharing microphones. Yeah, you're hearing the room as much as you're hearing the band which is, you know, a lot of albums I love were recorded that way. A lot of albums that were engineered by Steve Albini were, were done that way. Uh, Fun House by the Stooges, recorded in a, a very reverberant, very live-sounding room. And I just, I love the drum effect on here, where, where one speaker, it sounds really close, the other one sounds like it's down the hall. It's got like a weird lo-fi kind of effect to it, which I, like, if it was more quote unquote professionally recorded it wouldn't sound nearly as cool correct no it would lose so much of the atmosphere i also want to mention there is a, a live version that's available on uh, their box set the lost tapes and uh, i've got a clip from that because it shows just how much uh even though this was a composed song 
the musicians in Cannes had the sort of rapport where they could just mold songs however they wanted while they were performing them. And this uh, this clip from the live version of Mushroom is, uh, if anything, even darker and doomier than the one on the album. John, what do you think of this one? Love it. It's absolutely near the top of the pile of, of can for me. Um, it's everything I love about this band, uh, you know, dumped into four minutes. I I love the drums every bit as much as Phil does. I love the, you know, I have no idea what most of what uh, Dama was saying. It's, but it's not, it's not really the point, but there's like in the way that he, he structures the, the points of when he's going for for low volume mumbling and high pitched wailing, there's clear thought. He's not just um, unleashing sound for its own sake. Like there, there, there's clear thought in advance of what will be most effective in which spot. And you know, again, like that's for me one of the things that that, that makes Can so great and 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 embodies so much what I of what I love about this band. You know, there, again, there's all these individual elements. That, you know, if somebody else were to do them or or if a different group were to do the similar thing but worse, it wouldn't work. There's like this extra bit of intangible magic of them just being connected with each other and knowing exactly how to uh, take the the different crazy things that they're doing and do them in just the right way that this band had just down um, really better than anybody else. And yeah, again, Mushroom is is the ultimate embodiment of this. A uh, couple things I want to mention with it. Uh, also, uh, one, uh, back in the Flaming Lips episode, um, I mentioned that uh, earlier in their career, the, uh, the Flaming Lips did a track called uh, Take Me to Mars, which is very closely modeled off of this. Second thing is, you know, with with the explosion at the end, I'm really fascinated by the album cover because, you know, it it simultaneously looks like a uh, a brain getting shot through and a mushroom cloud, mm. which is like the worst com- in a certain sense, like the two of the most devastating images that you can put together. And somehow they put them, they combine them in a way that made them grosser together <laughs> than they than the sum of their parts. Uh, but, but I feel like there, there's something about this track that really embodies uh, that image, especially by the time you get to the end. So, yeah, everything about this, how it fits in as an individual track and how it, it blends into the whole is amazing to me. This is your brain on can. Yeah. I also feel like, you know, this is a good time to talk about, like, the 
meaning of vocals in can records. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So I feel like one thing that's an impediment to more people getting into can is that there's this idea. I don't know where it came from. That vocal should be emotional and straightforward and carry the melody. I don't know. It's a wild idea, but somehow it's, you know, the mainstream one. But yeah, can doesn't do that. Like Malcolm Mooney and Demo Suzuki and the other members of the band after Suzuki left, the vocals are kind of an afterthought, but you can kind of hear a similar idea in like another genre of music I like that tends to be a little bit alienating, like death and black metal, hmm. where if what you're looking for is for the vocals to carry a melody, you are going to be very sad because they do not do that. And also, if you want them to be easily understood. Right. Well, I mean, who knows what Suzuki is saying, as we'll talk about in a few minutes. Like, sometimes he'll just mix his vocals backwards because who cares? Like, the vocals are just supposed to be an overall part of the sound. They are not supposed to be the central focus. Which is also true in, like, various forms of, like, extreme metal. Like, the vocals are just part of the sound, as opposed to being what you should be focusing on. So if you're listening to Can trying to like focus on the vocals to say like, what's the song here, quote unquote, you're going to be sad. You need to kind of learn to accept the vocals are just part of their overall sound. And then once you get past that, then getting into their music is a lot easier. All right. So as Mushroom came out of Paper House without a break, so does Mushroom lead directly into track three. Oh, yeah. <laughs> It was either going to be Yellow or The Shadows of Night. Yellow is actually a pretty cool band, BT Dubs. I've meant to listen to more of them, actually. Their story is just wild. It's a literal candy magnate who formed a weird-ass band on a whim. (laughs) All right, here's the real Oh Yeah, which uh, is not featured on the soundtrack to Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I love how you can hear not just the explosion, but the radioactive ash falling afterwards. In a bit of continuity, this song does begin with the sound of an atomic explosion from, you know, the end of Mushroom. But from there, we get a truly otherworldly collection of sounds, starting with a quiet drum, bass, and keyboard bit, eventually supplemented with Demo Suzuki's vocals, which are mixed backwards, just in case it wasn't clear enough that the actual words that he's saying don't matter a lot. 
The whole thing just builds and builds, anchored by Liebitzite's absolutely amazing drumming. He really knows exactly what to accent, what to change up, and what to keep consistent for maximum effect. becomes a bit more conventional, but it's conventional for can, which means that it's still pretty dang weird. Well, pretty much all of the pieces on this album were built out of jams. The back half of Oh Yeah really feels like a jam in a way that much of this album doesn't. That said, it's a really cool jam featuring some really striking guitar playing from Caroli throughout. I'm sure this was edited together out of countless hours of improv. Chukai was an absolute master at taking just completely varied raw musical material and slicing them into something magical. John, what do you think of this one? Love it. <laughs> I, I love the drumming on this one, but I think of this one less as a as a Levisite track and more as a, a Chukai track and a Schmidt track. Um, I I adore Chuke's guitar parts. You know, he knows when to be gritty. He knows when to be jazzy. He knows when to be moody. And w- with the keyboard parts, you know, they're 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 very low key, but they're just the right low key. You know, if he did any more, you know, this might topple over into chaos. And everything just holds together in just the perfect way. Um, I want to mention really quick. I have, in a certain form, I've actually heard this track twice in one evening once. Um, so back in in two thousand three. I uh, went to see The Fall in a small place somewhere in San Francisco. I don't remember where. And uh, they had an, an opening act, which, you know, for the most part was unremarkable. But one of the things that they they played uh, actually was a cover of Oh Yeah. And I'd have to confess, it took me like four minutes to to, to figure out, wait, why is this so familiar? Because, you know, it, it, it was tickling my brain, but it wasn't done by the right people. So it wasn't registering. And eventually I got it. I was like, oh, this is this is a really nice uh, thing to stick in. And I mentioned I, I sort of heard it twice because in the actual fall show, uh, the uh, the closer of the main set was none other than I am Damotsuki. And the drum part of I am Damotsuki is very much based off the drum part of Oh Yeah. Um, so it was it was a nice little bit of continuity for the evening. Yeah, I actually included a clip of that because I, I figured I had to. And here it is now. What have you got in that paper bag? Is it a dose of vitamin C? Ain't got no time for Western lesson. Oh, 
something about how distinguishable like or rather how just unique Yaki Liebitzite is as a drummer that that's immediately yeah. recognizable as a can tribute yep yeah and I, I gotta say I I love that they did a can tribute but I I wish it sounded less like the musicians were not listening to each other at all I mean I think every <laughs> instrument in that song is completely out of time with all the others yeah that's right. who knows I mean who knows why Marky Smith did anything so oh yeah I don't think this is the absolute best song on the album but I I kind of think of this as sort of like the quintessential can song if I had to demonstrate to somebody what can sounded like and why they were great this is the song I would reach for because it's it's seven minutes long and it's it rides that one drum beat through the whole thing. But it also it's got three distinct sections and they all do they all demonstrate something else that was cool about can uh, like you've got the first section, which is, you know, it's it's tense and mysterious. It's got the backward sounds going on. You've got the section in the middle, which is as long as you don't need words to be clearly understood, it's incredibly catchy it's really easy to like that section parts of it almost remind me of stevie wonder some of the guitar parts sound like they're straight out of superstition And then you've got that jam at the end, which is just my favorite kind of jam, where you can tell that everybody in the band is egging everyone else on, and they're they're all just, you can hear them playing off each other and just getting more and more into it. It's structured in this really cool way. I mean, the the jam that this was based on might have gone on for six hours, but it's Jukai edited it down into a really nice seven-minute song, which is kind of breezy by can standards. That's another interesting thing about this, because I always thought about Oh Yeah as being a pretty short song, but it's like, it's seven minutes long. Yeah. But if you ask me to, like, guess, like, how long is this song? I would have said, like, Three and a half, four minutes? Yeah. It's like, nope, it's seven. It breezes by. Like, it really does not feel as long as it is. Nor does the next song, which is quite a bit longer. This takes up the entire second side of Tagomago, and it's called Hallelujah.
Lua, weighing in at 18 minutes and change and eating up the entirety of side two, is the kind of track that really shouldn't work. In lesser hands, it absolutely wouldn't work. It's essentially, at its core, just a long rhythmic jam, where Suzuki will occasionally jump in to yell some words that essentially don't matter, including one segment where he just lists the other songs on the album. It goes on and on and on until it eventually just sort of stops. It shouldn't work, but not only does it work, it is, in my opinion, one of the absolute greatest pieces of music ever recorded. At the risk of sounding like a broken record, much of this comes down to the drumming. Liebetzeit holds down an incredible groove for most of this track. On the occasions throughout this track where he is given the spotlight, he absolutely steals the show. About two minutes in, the initial vocal section of the song fades away, and Liebetzeit slides in with this incredibly heavy-hitting, powerful groove. later, this turns into a bit of drumming that I don't even really know how to describe. Michael Caroli starts making just wild guitar sounds, Chukai plays this repetitive rubbery bass line, and Liebetzite just goes absolutely nuts. Oh. 
in other parts of the song, Caroli manages to imitate a violin with his guitar much better than Jimmy Page would on The Song Remains the Same, BT dubs. <laughs> Schmidt plays otherworldly sounds on his keyboard, and Chukai keeps everything glued together with his wildly funky, repetitive bass line. The song ebbs and flows, building to many miniature climaxes, but never fundamentally changing. This isn't a multi-part suite or anything. Suzuki shows up on occasion, and his vocals are essential to completing the picture. A traditional vocalist wouldn't have much to do here, but Suzuki's wild yelling and seemingly random vocalizations just work here. Much credit for this piece holding together as well as it does has to go to Holger Chukai. He was, as we've mentioned, essentially Can's editor. It was very rare for the band to sit down and compose a quote-unquote song, they would just jam in the studio for as long as felt right, and then later Chukai would take a razor blade to the tapes, cutting stuff out, looping stuff, and building compositions out of the raw parts. It's somewhat similar to what Tio Macero would do with some of Miles Davis's compositions around like the Bitches Brew era, or in a silent way. He would take the raw elements of what the band did in the studio and just compose something wonderful out of them. I could ramble about this piece all day, but it's pretty hard to do justice to it in words. If you're interested in experimental rock music at all, you need to hear the whole piece today. You know the song Hey Soul Sister by Train? Unfortunately. This is the exact opposite of that song. <laughs> And what I mean by that is that it is the greatest song of all time. Now, the the list of songs that I have described as the greatest of all time is, is not a short one, but this is up near the top. It's 18 minutes long and it's too short. I, I read somewhere somebody said if this song was twice as long, it would be too short by half. And <laughs> I agree. I mean, however, I want to hear I want to hear the complete Hallelujah sessions. Like, if, if this was a jam that went on for six hours, I bet four of them were great. Liebetside's drumming here. I think some of those toms are overdubbed. I mean, he, the man was a god, but he was, he, he was not Vishnu. He was a, he was a god with, with only four limbs. But still, I mean, the, the basic rhythm he's playing on this song, if I could figure out how to play that on the drums, I wouldn't eat and I wouldn't sleep. I would just never stop playing that rhythm day in and day out until I just fell over dead. But I also love about halfway through the song is where Damo Suzuki brings in the big hook, which is Halalalalalua, which works a lot better than I just made it sound. It shouldn't work. It should not work. No. Yet, that's that's one of the things that sticks in your head. Also love that uh, Coroli guitar solo that was in that clip there, where it's, it always gives me this image of, uh, it's like I can see the guitar solo wafting out of the speaker, and it's like this orange wavy line that's just kind of snaking around as the, as the speaker kind of pulsates in and out. 
don't know, maybe I saw something like that in Yellow Submarine or something, but that's <laughs> that's the visual I get. Also, this this song was edited down into into three and a half minutes for a single release. Yes. Yeah. And uh why? Yeah. But uh the A side of that record was a song called Turtles Have Short Legs. And I have a clip of that right here. As much of a novelty as that is, this drumming. <laughs> the drumming is fire, yeah. What do you ever see that? Just gang aside. What do you ever see that? Just gang aside. But we can burn it out. 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 The band would play this live and go on for a very long time. <laughs> no idea why that didn't chart. <laughs> but yeah, Hallelujah, greatest song ever. I, I can't really describe it. You have to just, you just have to feel it. But John, what do you have to say about this one? I mean, it's my favorite can track. Uh, it's one of my favorite pieces of music ever. Uh, I loved it first time. In retrospect, they should have told me a lot of things about myself <laughs> Uh, that I wasn't willing to fully accept for a few years. <laughs> yeah, it, it it's amazing. I, I don't need to rehash everything that you guys have gone into. Um, I, I would just say that I I feel like, especially near the end, uh, Crowley, you know, again, like this is a Leave I track primarily, but Crowley kind of makes a play at stealing the show by the end and in particular like there's 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 a bit near the end where he comes in with this jazzy i love it i feel like like hearing something akin to that like in a live context would just rip the house down yeah like especially with all the the weight of the performance going up to that point um it's a it's a really show-stealing moment Rolly is like an all-time top 10 guitar player, and he does not get the respect that he deserves. Yes. But yeah, um, just an amazing piece of music. I I can put this on, you know, two or three times in a row. Um, just just groove to it because because there's just so much in there, and there's always thing, new things to be finding in it. So yeah, A plus plus would recommend. So given how important this album was and how vital this track in particular was, I was actually surprised when I went to whosampled.com and found that this album had not actually been heavily sampled, considering that this song has what I would consider possibly the best drum groove of all time. That was actually shocking to me. However, it was sampled in at least one noteworthy way as the basis for UK 
alternative dance band Primal Scream's 1997 hit Kowalski, yeah. which demonstrated that you could definitely take this groove and slam it into a modern dance song and have it work perfectly. noteworthy sample from the song that I could find didn't use the drum part at all. The weird piano bridge from after the Liebitzite drum meltdown that we clipped earlier was used for the track Lost Somebody from the final A Tribe Called Quest album. I wouldn't have thought to use that piano line, but man, it works incredibly well. Walk met Cheryl, Cheryl met Walt. Trinidadian in love sprouted through the asphalt. Love was consummated and the angels registered. Two would you be born, but only one of them made it. Inside a cloud of sorrow, a silver line and a joy. It's an incredibly creative use of just a weird diversion in the track, but somebody glommed onto it and determined that would be a cool sample, and it really works. I love when people sample the last part of a song that you would expect them to. But this brings us to what was originally the end of the first record in the two record Togomago set. And as we change records, we are crossing a threshold. Mm-hmm. We're about to go all the way down the rabbit hole into someplace where time has no meaning, language has no meaning. It almost doesn't make sense to give these tracks names. But to name the track is important to some. (laughs) So they give it a word, and the word is... (laughs) Track five. That was magnificent. (laughs) That is your masterwork, Mike. (laughs) Thank you. Taking up the entirety of side three of the original album is where this album either takes a strange turn or completely falls apart, depending on who you ask. The tracks on the first LP, experimental as they are, are recognizably in the world of rock music, 
with touches of jazz and funk and other experimental stuff just thrown into the mix. The second LP, however, pretty much ditches those elements entirely, and we're left with a bunch of bizarre sonic collages. I feel like there are probably a bunch of used vinyl copies of this album out there, where the first LP is clearly well-loved, and the second LP looks to have been played exactly once. <laughs> However, this is not music to be dismissed, and as strange and seemingly non-musical as it can seem, it's worth diving into. For the vast majority of its runtime, Aum has no rhythm to speak of. It's a dark, dreary ambient piece, with creepy guitar lines coming in from time to time and lots of disjointed sounds flying at the listener. If you're not familiar with this kind of thing, imagine Revolution Number no. 9 by the Beatles, but put together by people who actually know what they're doing. <laughs> I like Revolution Number no. 9, but John Lennon was a tourist in this world deciding to give this kind of sound collage a try. While the members of Can were members of the avant-garde art world long before they decided to give the whole rock thing a try. If anything, this track represents a return to their roots, albeit merged with the group's current improvise and edit recording strategy. This is basically Can's get back. <laughs> I am deeply curious what the unedited tapes for this track sound like. I really want to know just how much of this was composed during improvisation, how much of it was actually composed ahead of time, how much of it was pieced together via random sounds in editing. We'll probably never know for sure. Towards the end of the track, things do settle down a bit, and we finally get some actual drumming from Liebetzeit, but that doesn't happen until about 12 minutes in, at which point I'd imagine most normal listeners have lost interest. And even then, his drumming, while impressive, is still a lot more out there than the stuff he did on the first LP. that was somebody's dog who just wandered in and started barking during the recording sessions and they used it. Of course they did. <laughs> it's really hard to describe this piece more. It relies almost entirely on feel and without traditional rhythm or melody to fall back on. It's always going to alienate people. And I totally understand if you shut this album off after the first LP. In my opinion, this album would be a masterpiece if the first disc were the only disc. This is music that really requires you to be in the right mood. However, if you are in the right mood, the atmosphere of this piece is really unlike 
anything else. And it's a piece that has certainly earned the right to hang with the more traditional pieces on this album, even if it's a piece that people are far less likely to revisit regularly. All right, John, you got any anything coherent to make of this? Sure, sure. Um, so um, before we started prepping for this episode, um, I hadn't listened to this in the next track in well over 15 years. Um, during that time, you know, Tago Mago, when I would listen to it uh, digitally, it would, you know, it's a five track album. And going back and uh, listening to this in the next track, I actually found that uh, my opinions of them actually more or less settled into where they had been uh, when I last left off with them, which is on a certain level, I find them unlistenable, but it's music that's made by people who clearly know what they're doing. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of really solid atmosphere in, in bits of this track. Um, you know, there's, there's a couple of moments where I get, uh, some, actually some really legitimate chills on how dark the sound gets and how atmospheric it gets. Um, and, and I, I'm really struck with this track. The, the absence of Liebezeit is really profound. Hmm. Like you, you, you get an immediate sense of what happens to this music when you extract the drums, like there's just nothing to hold it together. And you, and you, you really, really feel, feel this void, this, this deeply unsettling um, sense in your gut that that's something that's wrong. And then the drums eventually come back to overcompensate, but there's also then, you know, no coherent music to go with them. It's, it's basically like the band has almost just been vivisected and you're just examining various entrails of the sound and it's you know it's very disturbing but it's an interesting effect it's it's not a track i will ever go out of my way to listen to but i feel like it does have a purpose in the context of the album so you know in a sense i am glad it's here even if again i I will probably not listen to it again for a very long time it's there if you want it and if you want to skip it you know, you can just do that. If you want, um, you've got it. <laughs> so I'm not going to pretend that I'm so cool that I hit it off with this song immediately. First couple times I heard Tagomago, this in the next track, I thought, uh, I, I don't know what to make of these two. But one day I decided I was going to listen to Tagomago. And when it got to this track, I was just going to sit there completely still, eyes shut without moving. And I just about had an out-of-body experience. Yep. It's dark and it's dissonant and it's weird, but it's very effective. It's effective because, you know, as, as you both said, they know what they're doing and they have a plan. I don't know if uh, everything they do in this song was planned beforehand, but they know what they want to do and they went all in on it. And this album is structured as a descent into madness, basically. Yes. And this is this is the sound of you beginning that descent and they commit to that atmosphere they're creating. And there are there are tracks on uh, the Lost Tapes where you can tell it's just an aimless noisemaking jam and they're just kind of throwing stuff at the wall. This is not that it's effective the entire time. And what it reminds me of really is uh the Waiting Room by Genesis. Mm-hmm. Very much. It's there to create this dark, foreboding atmosphere. And it works because they stick to that atmosphere so well. <laughs> ¶¶ 
And also, as as Phil mentioned, these guys these guys all studied under uh, Caroline Stockhausen, who was you know the guy who the Beatles were trying to emulate when they did stuff like Revolution Nine. He was a big pioneer of avant-garde electronic music, so they were they were learning from the best. Also, uh, that ending section with the the crazy psychedelic drum circle that happens, that just hits me directly in the basal ganglia. It makes me want to disappear into the woods and join the animals. It's the Grand Vizier's garden party, but good. (laughs) Yes. Reminds me a little of uh, some of the stuff Neurosis do. I saw them live a couple years ago, and they they closed with their song Through Silver and Blood, which ended with this full band drum circle. And it was simultaneously extremely cool and terrifying. But uh, if you were weirded out by that song, here's here's something a little more accessible, influenced very strongly by the likes of uh, Montavani and 101 Strings. Uh, this is Peking O, track six. I clipped the most normal part of that track that I could find, and that's still what you got. Yep. So you probably thought that Aum was the weirdest track you were going to encounter on this album, didn't you? Oh, you sweet summer child. Peking O, the 11-minute track that kicks off side four, is considerably more abrasive than Ohm. Ohm, for all of its dissonance and strangeness, largely works as an ambient track, creating a dark atmosphere that could theoretically fade into the background. It is impossible for Peking O to fade into the background, and the reason for that is one demo Suzuki. Suzuki was largely absent from Ohm, but he's sure as hell not absent here. He shouts and shrieks his way through most of the track, 
occasionally veering into a vocal style that John brilliantly described on his website as channeling the spirit of the Great Cornholio. <laughs> more so than Aum, you really have to be in the mood for this one. The track does have a few more groove-oriented moments. There are parts where the drums set up a rhythm that you could easily imagine transplanted into some, like, modern electronic dance music. The piece, also much like Aum before it, can really grab you if you happen to be in the correct headspace for it. It's just that, you know... This one's a real challenge to wrap your head around. One interesting note. I found an article, and it's impossible to say how true this is, but this was based on interviews with members of the band and stuff, and 50 years later, it's hard to know how true it is. But they claim that Erwin Schmidt's wife, Hildegard, was the person who insisted that Tago Mago be released as a double album. The group apparently originally intended for this to be a single album consisting of just the first four tracks, but were eventually convinced to include the weirdo second disc. It's an interesting thought experiment to think about how this album would be perceived if it was just the first four tracks without the 30 minutes of madness that is Aum and Peking O. Now that it's on one CD, you can just ignore these tracks if you want. But when the album was originally released, you had to pay for a double album, where I'd imagine that a good half of the album was going to sit there forever unplayed. I'd imagine that it had annoyed a great many buyers over the years. Whoo, what a vibe. So Peking O, I mean, it's difficult to, to form any kind of coherent thought about it. But at the same time, there's so much in this slab of weirdness that I love. I mean, first of all, it's just it's just really funny. I think it's it's genuinely there's a genuine sense of humor here. Oh, I think it's intentional, too. I don't I think the band is intending Absolutely. for you to laugh at it. Yeah, they're not. It's not your your stereotypical uh, German. We, we are very serious. Uh, I mean, Damo Suzuki's comic timing where he, he does these, you know, rapid fire bursts of nonsense and then punctuates them with, you know, these just completely over the top screams like he starts literally going like, <laughs> like yeah words have failed that's all you can say two of my my favorite parts of this thing are actually they actually bookend the first clip from it that we played uh because the very beginning kind of fools you into thinking it's going to be another kind of spacey floaty ambient piece and it all starts to intensify and eventually you have damo suzuki just like screaming his lungs out into some kind of tape echo unit. 
And on the other side of that clip, he Suzuki just starts chanting, Mama gonna eat, Papa gonna eat, Mama gonna, Papa gonna eat. <laughs> It reminds me of nothing so much as uh, I, I read this story once that Brian Wilson once invited Iggy Pop and Alice Cooper to his house, and he had both of them join him in singing the nursery rhyme "Shorten and Bread" for half an hour. Also, Pekingo ends with a few minutes of just this incredibly abrasive noise rock that I think you could probably, I mean, it, it wouldn't sound out of place on like an early Sonic Youth album yeah. or something by Swans. For sure. is a lot like uh, It Can't Happen Here on Freak Out. Yes. If, if you ask me if I'm ever in the mood to listen to Peking O by itself, my answer would be no. But it absolutely needs to be here as part of the structure of the album. Yeah, my thoughts are about the same. Uh, I never find myself in the mood for it. But every time I end up listening to it in the flow of the album, uh, I end up just being kind of gobsmacked at how ahead of its time it sounds yeah you know I, I remember i got this album around the same time that i got kid a by radiohead <laughs> oh no and, and i remember in listening to kid a uh, when as in particular when it got to the title track you know some of the the, the pitter patters in the drums that are on there you know i remember one of my first thoughts in listening to that was like oh this is pekino drums hmm I know that that's an oversimplification, but like I have like this forever connection between um, these two pieces of music because of that. And, and then I, you know, I, then I go, oh, wait a minute. There's a there's a long, long gap uh, between when these two pieces of, of music were made. You know, that's at least somewhat interesting. And then beyond that, you know, there's a lot of insanity here. But, you know, I, I really like the way that um, as Damo is is doing everything that he's, he's doing, you know, the whole band is again in on the joke. Um, the the way that Schmidt plays off of of Damo, um, you know, yeah, wrapping up the craziness of his own playing in, in these call and response little bits is it's really entertaining in a very very perverse way. Right. It's it's not like you know super musical, but it's sure fun. Yeah. 
again, I, 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 I will probably go a long while before listening to this track again, but within the flow of the album, I get it. And I can I can absolutely you know see why they would stick it here. But I I hadn't thought about it that way. But you can definitely hear like on Kid A how like Radiohead yeah. may have taken some of the raw materials from this and just coalesced it into something that's not exactly commercial, but it's perhaps a little bit more acceptable. Yeah, yeah. Because you know everything in its right place, and you know the track Kid A like. They're weird songs. When I first heard them, when Kid A first came out, I bought that album like as soon as it came out and I found them really alienating. And nowadays that I'm more familiar with stuff like Cans, Tago Mago, it's like that music is far less alienating to me and I can really hear where it came from and what they're piecing it together from. The key word that I often use with Can with this band is primordial ooze. Yeah. And, you know, primordial ooze in and of itself is not always the easiest thing to get your hands around. But, you know, once you can start to identify how things came together here and then how things started getting picked off for use later and how these raw materials were were developed, you know, there starts to be a a level of interest that can only go up and up. I'm glad that you both mentioned Radiohead uh, because the. The song uh, Dollars and Cents off of Amnesiac is uh, an intentional attempt to sound like Can. They actually, they recorded it uh, the same way that Can did. They jammed for a long time and then edited edited it down into something resembling a song. And there are parts of it where Tom York is singing nothing, the way Damo Suzuki might. there's been a big can influence in Radiohead because I know at some point you know Radiohead used to cover Thief in concert they did yeah it's an early pre-monster movie track that was originally intended to be on prepare to meet thy pnoom that was not released till much later but apparently Tom York really loved it and Radiohead played it live a bunch yeah they played it one of the times I saw them If you're if you're still listening after all of that, we do have we do have one more song at the end to bring you back to the world of of regular people. Track seven is "Bring Me Coffee or Tea."
coffee or tea is the necessary soothing balm after the previous 30 minutes of abrasive noisemaking that Tago Mago has subjected the listener to. The track is seven minutes long, which, again, as I've mentioned earlier, if you had asked me before this episode to guess how long this track was, I would have said, like, I don't know, three minutes. It's like, nope, it's seven. And it never departs from a single central chord played on the organ, while Suzuki sings his typically free-form lyrics in a much quieter way than he usually does, while the rest of the band just kind of swirls around that one chord. The overall atmosphere is very calming and serene, which are not typically ways one would describe the music of Can. The song is relatively minor compared to the monster tracks on the first LP, but its placement on the album is brilliant. If you're engaged in active listening, and actually pay attention and go through the hellscape of Aum and Peking O, it would be perfectly understandable for you to be pretty on edge. Bring Me Coffee or Tea successfully brings you down from all the noise that you've just been subjected to. Its presence brings the whole second LP together. So the second LP with this track, it's more than just a bunch of weird abrasive noise. It's a voyage to the outer limits of sound and then back again. It's basically good night. Ha! <laughs> Pretty much. Now it's time to say good night. Good night. Sleep tight. I, I had never thought of the Revolution 9 to good night comparison, but that is exactly right. It's yeah, except I think this is far more effective simply because and I love the White Album. It's one of my favorite albums ever. And I love Revolution number nine. But can are better at this kind of sonic collage than the Beatles were. Sure. Because that's their specialty before they started a rock band. And Good Night is almost kind of a really on the nose. Let's make a very calm and soothing piece. Whereas Bring Me Coffee or Tea is a soothing piece, but it's still fundamentally can-like. Correct. Mm. Good Night doesn't really sound like the Beatles. It feels like, you know, they're kind of taking the piss. They're, you know, intentionally going back to, like, an older style. Whereas Can want to, like, bring you down, but they still sound like Can, which is a very impressive accomplishment. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I've always really liked this track um, as a standalone, but I, I almost feel like it works much better in context uh, than it does by itself. It, it, you know, for the last 15 plus years, you know, when I've listened to this, it's been as a five track album. So this would come right after Hallelujah. And again, like in terms of average musical track quality, that may be an improvement. But this works best if you think of you've you've just gone through just this absolutely nightmarish psychedelic trip. You only have vague uh, recollections of pain and horror. And then you wake up in a, a dark room uh, in a monastery in Nepal hmm. and you're just trying to meditate off whatever the hell just happened. And, you know, monks are bringing you, you know, cold compresses and, and various things to help you, uh, you know, work your way back into reality. I feel, feel like that's what this track is. And I feel like it works brilliantly uh, in that way. So, yeah, it's a magnificent closer and a, a really great track in its own right. Yeah, my, my thoughts on this song are pretty much exactly John's. It's, 
you can't end the album with peaking O. You can't just put a bunch of weirdness at the end and then spit the listener out. I mean, you could, but then you'd have, you know, you'd have a, a disc of, of normal music and a disc of the weird stuff, which, you know, it wouldn't be the, the journey that it is. And putting this song at the end, not only does it serve as a nice come down from the last two tracks, it kind of intensifies them by contrast. It's like you've you've been on this crazy journey to the scariest parts of your mind and now you're back and uh the the, the light hurts your eyes it, to, to, to quote another can song don't turn the light on leave me alone <laughs> is the prevailing mood of this one yep and it's it gives you the feeling that you've been through this experience and you've been forever changed and this is you sort of trying to put your mind back together and recover from it but I got to say, you know, even as uh, relatively sedate as this song is, the drums in the background are still crazy. Yep. Liebetzeit's just going nuts back there. It's just he's just mixed way in the background. So it's it's not the first thing you notice. But even on a song like this, he, he goes all out. I feel like the drums are almost the equivalent of like methadone. Like you've got to have you've mm-hmm. got to have like something approaching the intensity of the percussion um, from the rest of the album. Otherwise, like the the shift into calming isn't it's not going to work. It's not going to bring you down in a gradual enough way. All right. So we have come. Uh, hopefully, if you've if you haven't bailed out during the second half, we have come to the end of Tago Mago. Phil, what are your final thoughts? So, look, I understand Taco Mago is not going to be for everybody. A solid half of it is completely bizarre. And the other half, while more accessible, is not exactly what I'd call made up of traditional compositions, quote unquote. Can are essentially a whole genre unto themselves. Because of this, it's very hard for me to predict if you'd actually like can or not. Just Not you, my co-host, you, the (laughs) royal you. (laughs) That said, Can are easily one of my all-time favorite bands, and Tago Mago is probably my favorite album by them. It's funky, it's cerebral, it's weird, it's dissonant, it's creative. It's so many cool things. I believe that this is one of those albums that whatever you think, you should hear it for yourself. If you don't like it, that's fine, because it's certainly not for everybody. But if you do like it, it's a journey unlike any other. Indeed. John, how about you? You know, if if Tago Mago had stopped after Hallelujah, it might be one of my 10 favorite albums. Now, there is more to the album than that. Uh, so it, it drops some, but it doesn't drop that far. Uh, this is, you know, for me... An album that 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 works on a visceral level, it works on an intellectual level. There are lots of it that I find genuinely enjoyable in a not too difficult to stretch myself sort of way. And yeah, it's 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 an album that's that's not going to be for everyone, but it's it's also an album. You know, I've seen this album specifically cited in many places as arguably the most influential album of all time, or at least in the category of like non Beatles uh, in terms of its influence on underground music. And I mentioned this because it's an album where, you know, an individual's enjoyment 
of it as an entity unto itself almost doesn't matter because its influence has seeped into so many other things. And listening to this, if nothing else can give you a sense of, you know, the Big Bang, the place where where musical life began. And it can broaden your perspective on a lot of things on the development of non-mainstream rock music over the last 50 years. So yeah, I, I highly recommend it. If you don't like it, fine, but it's great in a way that almost transcends liking it or not. I, I guess like a, a thought I have had is that uh, a common thing I've seen people say about this album is just that it's very influential on later stuff. But I've seen some people say like, well, it's just the raw materials and later people improved upon it. And I don't necessarily agree that people improved upon it because I just really love this record. Yeah, but like that's that's the common line. But like if you like, you know, stuff like Kid A or, you know, a lot of this kind of modern experimental rock music, you, you got to hear this. Absolutely. You know, I, I know we're part of the, the weird music contingent of Discord and Rhyme, and this oh, yeah. is absolutely one of the weirdest albums we've talked about. So I I get that this album is not going to resonate with everybody the way it, it does with us. But, you know, I was I was listening to this yesterday after not having listened to it all the way through for a while. And not only was I reminded of, of so many things that I, I love about this album, I was reminded of so many things that I love about music. That was my my overriding feeling after it was over was just ah, music is awesome. And if you think you, you might have anywhere near the same reaction as I did, then I implore you to listen to this album because it, you might hate it, but it might change your life. That's a gamble I recommend taking. But Phil, somebody has listened to Tago Mago and they want more can. What should they listen to next? So I took two approaches here. Approach one is you want more can and approach two is you want more music kind of like can. Well, if you like can, I have good news for you. In my opinion, most of their albums are excellent. It was really hard for me to narrow it down to just picking one other Can album, but I'll recommend their follow-up to this album, Ege Bamyasa, which has many tracks that are just incredibly likable. It kind of distills a lot of the essence of Tago Mago down into a single LP. It has some of the weird stuff, but it merges it more into like traditional can style music so you don't have anything as wildly off-putting as ohm or peking o but you still get that element of weirdness and i think it's an album well worth acquainting yourself with
Now, if you like Can and are interested in exploring more music like them, Can are very frequently put into the genre of quote-unquote krautrock, which is a genre that basically just consists of any kind of German music that is vaguely experimental in nature, which results in it not being a particularly good genre distinction, because, I mean, we talked about Kraftwerk's Computer World recently, and this doesn't sound anything like that in any way. And I've also seen, like, Noi and, like, Tangerine Dream, like, thrown in this category, and it doesn't sound anything like this. And it's hard to think of another band that sounds quite like Can, but the best example I could think of for another band like this if you like Tago Mago, I would recommend Yeti by Amandul 2. Yes. They're a band that got signed about the same time as Can, and they're a little bit more rock-oriented, but they're still really experimental and interesting, and Yeti is even structured kind of like Tago Mago, where it's a double album where the first album is the normal stuff and the second album is the weird stuff. And much like on Tago Mago, both sides have things to recommend them. So yeah, definitely check that album out. Those first three Amandul 2 albums are so damn good. Yeah, major cosign on recommending Yeti. That album's full of cool stuff. But John, what do you recommend? Uh, I want to recommend Soundtracks, the album that comes before this. Um, you know, it's a little less intense, and it's it, it, it's patchwork, but it has Mother Sky, uh, which I like probably ninety five percent as much as I like Hallelujah. So, which which means that I absolutely adore it. Um, it has some uh, some other uh, smaller scale uh, tracks that I, I really enjoy, like uh, two iterations of a track called Deadlock. Um, you yeah, aforementioned, uh, Don't Turn the Light On, Leave Me Alone.
yeah, Mother Sky is is a track that I'm just going to come back to over and over again from there for the rest of my life. Soul Desert? Yeah. No. <laughs> Go away, Soul Desert. Nobody loves you. All right, so my recommendation, this is actually tied with Tago Mago for my, my favorite Can album, and that's uh, 1973's Future Days, which was the last album they made with Damo Suzuki. It's almost diametrically opposed to Tago Mago in a lot of ways. It is much more chilled out and relaxed and quite a bit more accessible. And for that reason, it's probably the can album I listen to the most because you can just I feel like it's can if they had decaf (laughs) (laughs) or somebody brought them tea instead of coffee. (laughs) There you go. But it's it's accessible in a way that does not compromise anything about what makes them great or what makes Tago Mago great. You know, Liebetzeit's drumming is still fantastic. You know, all the the instrumental interplay and the the group improvisation, it's all there in full force. It's just it's easier to just vibe to. So it's it's a, a valuable album in that regard. Uh the, the song I'm gonna clip is uh, a song called Moonshake, <laughs> which I just I put on mixes for everybody. I have too. <laughs> us to the end of the episode our next episode will be about the most influential swedish band of all time bathory so get your viking helmets on and prepare to raid some villages because uh i've i've just received a note uh quick correction uh the next episode will actually be about ABBA the album. We changed our mind. Roll credits? Thank you for listening to Discord and Rhyme. You can buy Tago Mago and other albums by Can at your local record store or directly from Mute Records via their Bandcamp site, canofficial.bandcamp.com. You can also buy or stream it at the usual places, such as Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, and Amazon. Visit our website, discordpod.com, for show notes and a Spotify playlist featuring this album and every song we clipped in this episode. You can follow Discord and Rhyme at DiscordPod on Twitter for news and updates. Visit John's Music Review Archive at johnmcferranmusicreviews.org. Fair warning, he rates albums in hexadecimal. He gave Tagomago a D which means great slash very good. Editing is by Rich Bunnell, and special thanks to me for production, our theme song, and original music. See you next album, and keep as cool as you can. 